how that directly impacts your returns, your evaluation of the property, the overall success of the property, then I think it could be detrimental, to be honest. If you're a passive investor wanting to learn more about questions to ask sponsors in order to qualify the opportunities, in order to qualify the sponsor, in order to qualify the market that the property is in, then go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. My team and I created this site just for you so that there is a free resource available to you to learn about the questions to ask, the things to think through prior to investing in deals. So go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. It's a free resource for you that was made just for you. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Ashley Wilson. How you doing, Ashley? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And looking forward to our conversation a little bit about Ashley. She's a co-founder of Bar Down Investments and House It Look LLC. Love that play on words. She owns 450 units in overseas asset and construction management on 349 units, has completed 15 flips, and is based in Philly. With that being said, Ashley, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. So I got into real estate approximately 10 years ago with the purchase of a single family rental property. And we did actually short-term rentals out of that property. We then continued to do short-term rentals for a couple years out of that property and moved into long-term rentals with that property. So we got a little taste of the rental side in terms of being a single owner of a property, both short-term and long-term and dealing with tenant issues, et cetera. So that was our taste of apartment ownership per se. And then we moved a few years later into the flipping business. Our How's It Look company has been in business for five years. We predominantly flip on the main line in Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs. And we typically focus on high-end renovations and historic homes. So the majority of our work is within the 1900s to 1960 era of construction. And we do full gut rehabs on those projects. So all six-figure type renovations. Hmm. Then within the past year, we actually transitioned into the multifamily space. We passively invested in an apartment in Ohio that was 101 units to get a little taste of the multifamily space. And we've been educating ourselves on it for years, but unfortunately we lived overseas and we really didn't think it was the best decision to get into the multifamily space while living overseas. We really wanted to be home for that. So once we got home, we did our first passive investment and then that snowballed into co-sponsoring on our first deal shortly thereafter, 124 units right outside of Houston. And most recently, we just partnered with another company to pick up 225 units in Amarillo, Texas. So the two properties that we are GPing on, I am running the asset and construction management pieces of those properties. Well, the first property, I uh, ran it for the transitional period. 
for the first nine months, and then actually it's transitioned since then. However, I'm running the asset and construction management piece on the 225 units right now out of Amarillo. Describe a day in the life of someone who's overseeing the asset and construction management of a 225-unit property. Well, keep your phone with you at all times (laughs) is something I would definitely recommend to anyone looking to dive into this space. You can get a call for any number of reasons. And I think when you take over a property, we prefer properties that are value add and obviously That's the buzzword in the multifamily space right now. There are a lot of buyers that are looking for value-add properties. And the simplest way to think of a value-add property, I'm sure the majority of your listeners already know, but the simplest way and what I'd like to tell people who are new to real estate is it's a flip on steroids. So you're taking a property that is in some form of distress. It could be due to property management issues. It could be due to deferred maintenance There's a slew of reasons, even nature. If there was a storm and half the units are offline and the previous ownership didn't have the funds to renovate those units, that is another reason that a property might be in distress. But what you're doing is taking that property and you're getting it performing optimally. So that could be by means of a more efficient property management company. It could be through interior renovations, exterior renovations, amenities. Marketing is a huge game changer as well. So there's a lot of different plays that you can take. So each property is different and it has different needs. You need to really be on the pulse as to what the property needs and what the market wants and pair those two together. So let's talk about your day. So you said, keep your phone with you at all times. And what are some phone calls, maybe the last couple phone calls you've had with the on the ground management team about the property? So we've had a challenge with finding good, reliable contractors in the Amarillo market. We have a different standard, I would say, in terms of what we're used to and the contractors we're used to working with. So I've been getting a lot of calls recently on our plan to tackle projects with the current workforce and the options we have within that market. So that's one of the things that has been a little bit challenging. Obviously time is money in this space. So you need to be able to balance the premium that you'll pay for people who might need to come out of town to do the work versus the time that it's taking to have the work completed with the current workforce in that market. And that's something that I'm sure if you meet two different people, they would have two different answers as to what the solution should be. But I personally would rather pay a little bit more to have the work done sooner because I realized that ROI factor. And I think it's more important to have ready product and to transition the property very quickly. So not only does the current tenant base notice the change of the tone of the new ownership, but the market does as well. So that's personally an example of something that has been a frequent call recently but you can get calls about storms in Amarillo. Obviously they have a lot of winds because they're in a panhandle. So we have a lot of wind storms. We have a lot of excess rain. 
so it's very typical for properties in the Amarillo market to have some flooding issues from time to time. It's very short lived because the absorption rate of the ground, it's very dry. So the water absorbs pretty quickly. It doesn't sit. So that's fortunate, but there's all different types of calls that one can get. I'm fortunate to have worked with this property management company previously. So we already vibe in terms of what type of information I need to be notified of immediately versus what information that I trust and confident that they understand how I would want it handled. And I trust that they handle it appropriately too. And that I think is a game changer because the first time you work with a new company, there's not only learning about the property and the property needs and the market needs, but also to the working relationship you have on the team. Oh yeah. Huge. I agree with your school of thought, pay a premium for people to get it done, even if they have to travel a bit farther to your place versus if there's a workforce that's not cutting it and it's taking longer and paying and quote unquote saving money when you really don't save a whole lot of money. What's an example of a CapEx project that you're working on right now that you have to pay a little bit more for, but you're getting the high quality out of towners? One thing we paid a little bit more for was we switched out all the exterior lighting to LED. And when we priced it in the market, it was a little bit cheaper, but the timeline that we were given by the contractors was much longer to accomplish. And that's something that you can realize right away on the cost savings from your utility bills. So we have experience working with another company that is actually out of Houston. And because we had enough units that were offline when we acquired the property, because we just acquired the property recently, we were able to house those people who came to do the work from out of town. So we paid a little bit more. Fortunately, we didn't have to pay for the housing factor because the units were already offline in the sense that they were in the process of being renovated and the team was agreeable to stay in those types of units, even though they weren't fully renovated. They're definitely habitable units, but that project then ended up being completed in a week and a half, as opposed to the month timeline that we were given. Mm -hmm. So that's something that is an example of why I prefer to pay a little bit more, especially with a company that you've already worked with before and you have that track record with them to know that they have good quality work and they're trustworthy. And when they tell you that the project will be completed by a certain date, it actually is completed by that date. That goes a long way. I've worked with contractors for a long time my father is a general contractor, so I grew up in this space, which is why I think that I've come to find my niche in the multifamily space in terms of construction management. I enjoy asset management and it, it kind of came organically, but originally when I first got into the multifamily space, it was via this construction management background. So I think in the multifamily space, you don't see a lot of syndication teams that have construction managers or someone who's actually really knowledgeable about construction on the team. And I think that's a deficit. I know personally, I would never invest with a group that didn't have someone on their team, part of the GP with actual construction knowledge and management experience. 
And the reason I say that is twofold. One is because I personally believe that when you outsource construction management, your interests are no longer aligned. And to go into that a little bit deeper, I believe that when you outsource construction management, you're paying a fee based on the total cost of that construction or the CapEx. Therefore, that construction manager has no incentive to decrease the overall expense, nor do they have an incentive to decrease the overall timeline because they don't understand multifamily ownership and the game of syndication in terms of what one single day on a unit renovation equates to. So if you have a property that has 100 doors and it takes five days to renovate the unit versus four days, that's 100 days of potential lost revenue that you're losing out on. And a construction manager is not going to have that incentive, no matter how you try to build that in, unless they are directly impacted, their compensation, their livelihood is directly impacted by it being more cost effective and in a shorter timeline. So I think everyone understands that concept when you're speaking about asset managers, but I don't think they relay that over to the construction manager. And I think that is a huge deficit that I see across a lot of different syndication teams. So that's where I've been able to really show what I'm strong at. And I'm not saying it just for me. I'm saying you should really, instead of hiring someone, if you find someone and they're very knowledgeable and they understand multifamily, you can start partnering with them instead. It is much more advantageous, not only for you as a GP, but ultimately as a GP, we are responsible for the LP investment. And to me, there is no better way to ensure the safety and security of the LP investment than overseeing all aspects of ownership, not just asset management. What are a couple things that novice construction management managers would miss or overlook that someone who has more experience would pick up on? There are a lot of examples. So one example that I give quite frequently is I call it the patio example. So a lot of these properties have patios. And oftentimes when you're in value add situations and you're looking at these patios, the patios, sometimes it appears as if they're completely structurally unsound when it might be only a minor structural issue. So what they do is they'll bring in one contractor And they'll say, how do you think this patio should be repaired? And the contractor will look at it and say, okay, we're going to jackhammer this concrete up. We're going to redo all of the framing, put in new joists, new posts, and we're going to re-pour the slab. And let's say, for example, that was three grand. So what a novice construction manager would do is take that scope of work cross out the bid price, the estimate, and get two additional bids because everyone loves the rule of three, get three competitive bids. So they go out and they get two additional bids from two other people. And let's say, for example, that it's 2,500 and another one comes in at 3,200. So they look at the bids, they try to 
get recommendations of the company and look at their track record and then they pick a company. Well, someone like me who has more experience in construction would know that that situation could potentially be handled by just putting one additional post up. So instead of completely tearing down the structure, rebuilding the structure, it might only need one support post that is a few hundred dollars, to be honest with you. You could probably get it done max for $500 by doing a post. And then if there are cosmetic cracks on the concrete, you can just put over a new surface covering. So redoing the slab instead of re-pouring the concrete, putting over, they have these thicker paints that are binding that last for definitely the ownership of these properties because we're in and out of them pretty quickly as I'm sure you are in most of the audiences. So that could resolve the issue at $500 because someone is not very knowledgeable about construction. They take the word of whoever first comes out and looks at the property and then use that to send to other people without considering alternatives because they don't have the experience to know that there are multiple ways that you can solve an issue. So that's one example. Another example is we're getting invoices and I could go on and on, I guess, but (laughs) there's one example. So for example, we took over the property that we have now and they're the Amarillo property, sorry, I should have specified the Amarillo property. And there was an ongoing plumbing situation on that property that the previous owner was handling. And then unfortunately we inherited it, but it was at the tail end of it being done. So there was a change order and which by the way, anyone who has ever worked with me knows that never send me a change order because I'm not going to approve it it needs to be something significantly wrong. And that's something that a novice person wouldn't know either because they wouldn't be able to argue why you can't give me a change order. So I'll give you an example of why I said that you can't give me this change order. So to finish the job that we had inherited was approximately $10,000. And we agreed to that to finish the job. That was definitely reasonable. And what happened was they went to get it inspected and this pipe that they put in was not pitched correctly. So with the plumbing, you need to position the pipe that it can allow the waste to flow through the pipe. And if it's pitched incorrectly, or if it's even level, then it has a hard time of draining. So long story short is they failed the inspection. So they called me to say, okay, well, we failed the inspection and we're going to need a change order because in order to pitch the pipe correctly, we need to dig more and et cetera. And I said, well, pitching the pipe correctly is a code requirement. There are actual specifications on how the pipe should be pitched. So are you telling me that the city wants it outside of those guidelines? And they said, no. And I said, okay, Well, the job that I hired you to do was to pitch it correctly. So I don't care whether or not you failed to pitch it correctly and passed inspection. And I don't care whether or not it's going to cost you more money to do it correctly. But I hired you to do this. I'm not paying you until you do this. So until you have a final inspection and I receive that final approved inspection and it gets notarized, 
then I'm not giving you any payment. So this is where we stand. So they were arguing back and forth and making reasons. And I said, I, I really don't care. You could tell me any reason in the world. I, I'm not. The, what were, the, were a couple reasons they were given? They were given reasons that in order to pitch the pipe correctly, they would have to excavate more because the brackets at which they adhered the joint to the pipe was corroded. So in order to attach it where they needed to, they would have to excavate more and then be able to put up these new brackets. And that's something that they didn't know going into it when they were excavating. That's all well and good. And I actually agree with that argument. That is a very logical argument. But here is where someone who has more experience comes into play. And my response to them was, okay, well, you knew that prior to calling the city and asking them to come out for final inspection, but you still made the call. So as soon as you made the call to the inspection, instead of calling me and explaining this to me, you believe that you would have passed inspection. They said to me, their response was, well, we've passed before where it wasn't pitched according to code. And I said, well, that's not what I hired you to do. So you need to pass the code. And if this had been a problem and you had called me in advance, that is a completely different situation, but that's not the situation we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the fact that you called the city and believed that you could pass inspection and you failed. So because you made that call, because you had that appointment, because you failed that inspection, I'm not paying you until it's done. Well, guess what happened? They threatened to not complete the job. And I said, no problem. We'll get our lawyers involved. We can handle this. We'll notify the city. We'll notify the Better Business Bureau. I'll also get a hold of your insurance company and your licensing. We'll take care of it that way. If that's the way you want to handle it, that's fine. No, 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 no. We'll handle it. They handled it. No change order. Everything was completed a week later, past inspection. (laughs) How much out-of-pocket cost would you say it was for them to complete it? Well, they were trying to charge us an additional 2,500 change order, which I think is a joke. When you see the scale of projects that you're doing, if you're going to come at me with a change order, it better be significant and not $2,500. On my single family in multifamily, people know me well enough to know never come at me with a change order unless it's really extravagant. But I would guess that they're probably upcharging us a lot. So I would say maybe between a thousand and 1500 that they were out of pocket on. And you know what the irony of the whole situation is? So we did some additional work done, but because of the situation, we decided we didn't want them to do it. So part of their job included backfilling everything and repouring the slab. Well, because we were done working with them and didn't have a very good experience with them, we said, okay, we don't need you to do that anymore. And they said, okay, no problem. And I said, and I'm going to need you to credit that back to me because that was initially included in on the scope. So not only did they do additional work for me that they were trying to charge me 2,500 on, but I got them to give me a credit for $1,250 because I didn't have them backfill or pour a slab. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That, that, the tenacity, but then also knowledge and sticking to your guns and experience too. There's a whole lot of different components to being able to do that. And 
I can tell you I don't have that skill set, and I'm glad there are people like you who do because it's tremendous value, that's for sure. I think there's a lot of other nuances too, like for example, payment structure. I very rarely give a deposit. I don't believe in that. It's a service industry. I don't pay for my haircut before I get my haircut. So I'm not going to pay for any service before it actually occurs. Materials is a different situation, but in terms of actual service, I have known too many people have been burned by that. I've been burned a couple times by it, and it's something I don't believe in. Another thing too is taxes. A lot of companies will try to sneak by and tax you on the labor. You cannot tax on labor. You can tax on materials. So you just really need to know all of the details. And I think someone who, like I said, originally going back to why I think it's critical you have a construction manager on the GP is that if you don't have someone who is really knowledgeable about all of those components and understands how that directly impacts your returns, your evaluation of the property, the overall success of the property, then I think it could be detrimental, to be honest. Taking a giant step back, which you might have just mentioned, but what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think that you can have a really good deal not come to fruition because the people that are running it and leading it are not the best suited to do so. And I think you can have a challenging property, but have an amazing team and that deal do exceptionally well. We all like to talk about real estate and we're all in this because we love real estate. I absolutely love real estate. I can talk about it every day, all day. But at the end of the day, the successfulness of that real estate comes down to the people that are tied to it. So I think really knowing the team that is operating the property, working on the property, boots on the ground, I mean, every single person that has any sort of decision-making power and how they all intertwine is really critical if you want to invest in real estate, whether it be passively or actively. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I hope so. (laughs) I believe you are. You seem a very prepared person. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you're a passive investor and want to learn more about Ashcroft Capital, the company I co-founded with my business partner, Frank, and in particular, want to learn more about our strategy and how we think about the opportunities that we purchase, go to ashcroftcapital.com and click the strategy button above and you'll be able to read through our thought process we use when we're purchasing multifamily properties. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net. Okay, best ever book you've recently read? Well, I would have to say your book. Your book is incredible. Your syndication, yeah. It is so good. I've recommended it to a lot of people who are not in syndication at all, who are just getting started, and people who've been in it for a while. 
but I really like it because you just come at it from a lot of different viewpoints. And I also think too, that the readability of the book is so good. I read it so quickly and enjoyed it. And there are a lot of books that try to cover the same topic and it gets too dense and it's not very enjoyable to read. So I've really enjoyed reading your book. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I am a rather simple-minded person. So I, I speak plainly in the book and Theo is not a simple-minded person, but I rub off on him a little bit too when we write it together. What's the best ever deal you've done? I hope in a couple of years I can say the apartments, but the apartments haven't gone full cycle yet. So I can't say that yet. I had a couple single families that we flipped. The short-term rental we did was extremely successful. We were making over 10 grand a month. So that was very successful on just one property. But one of the single families we did, we were contacted by an agent who wanted us to come look at the property. They had heard about our company and they had heard that we're guaranteed to close, no contingencies. They liked the easiness of just being able to rely on someone to get to the closing table. The property was listed for $4.99. It had been on the market for five days. We came out to look at the property. And after I looked at the property, I said, oh, I really don't think that our number will be close to what you're asking. And she said, just write up an offer. And I thought maybe I'm missing something. So I had my dad go back out and look at the property because I was afraid that I missed something critical to do with the construction. And my dad went out and he actually had a smaller construction budget than I had for the project. So I talked to the agent again and we ended up offering 315. She insisted we write up an offer. So I offered 315, the house had been on the market for seven days. I tried to convince her to just drop the price and she would get whatever she wanted for it. Basically, I thought she could get around 425 for it for someone else. But she insisted we write up an offer. We got it for three fifteen. dollars We renovated it and we sold it for almost $7.50. So that was a really good, unexpected situation that came up. But it also, too, I believe was a result of all the groundwork that we laid beforehand, that we really cared about our reputation we still care about our reputation, but we made sure that any time we worked with an agent that we made it as easy as possible for them so that any time that they got a distressed property, they would think of us first and clearly that paid off. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? This is a recent mistake that I've made on a transaction. I've made, I can't even tell you, first of all, on every single property I've made a mistake. And the point is that you need to debrief and constantly throughout the process and make sure that you write down your mistake, you write down how you won't make the mistake again, and you learn from the mistake. And on a property that we recently purchased, I underestimated the proximity of the two roads that were close to it and the proximity of the commercial space that was near it. So that's on the single family side. On the multifamily side, Understanding partnerships and who gets the ultimate say is a mistake that I've made too. So understanding dynamics within a GP, looking back on a situation, I wish I had understood that better. And I think I would have made different decisions if I had known that. 
Best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back <laughs> to everything. My husband says that I do too much, but any way possible that I can give back in terms of volunteering. I volunteer in a lot of different organizations. I still volunteer for my alma mater, serving as a co-chair for the class. I'm a huge animal advocate, so I support a lot of different organizations through different animal advocacy groups. And then also, too, I run a meetup group, a subgroup of Invest Her in the Philadelphia suburbs. And I feel that that is another way that I like giving back because I like sharing information and helping people whatever they need. A lot of people will come to me when they're looking at other deals, other apartments to invest in, and I'll tell them the pros and cons of that deal. And I'm not going to tell them one way or another, whether or not to invest that's for them to make the decision. But I feel that if I educate them on how to run analysis on properties, they only get stronger. So I spend a lot of time giving back to people who are interested in learning more about real estate. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? You can find us at howsitlook.com on the single family side and on the multifamily side, investbardown.com. Ashley, thank you for being on the show talking about construction management and multifamily giving real life examples that have happened recently, as well as how to work with contractors when you're managing the process. So thank you for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.